Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dunstone's History at 75 years ago today. A US B-29 aircraft dropped an atomic bomb on the city of Nagasaki. It was the second bomb dropped during the Second World War, and thankfully it would be the last. Japan surrendered shortly afterwards. Nagasaki is the often overlooked nuclear strike in the Second World War, arguably more important in its strategic impact than the attack on Hiroshima. But why did they select Nagasaki? Why did they drop a second bomb at all? And was there a push to drop a third, fourth and fifth nuclear bomb on Japan in 1945? Uh, to mark this anniversary, I'm talking to Harvard professor Frederick Logaval. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner. He's a legend. Uh, and he's going to answer all my questions about Nagasaki. If you want to watch documentaries about the Second World War, about the end of the Second World War, then you can do so over at History Hit TV. It's like Netflix for history. You just head over there, historyhit.tv. You enter the code POD1, P-O-D-1. That gets you a special introductory offer available only to podcast listeners of a month for free. And then one month is one pound, euro or dollar. It's extraordinary. And you can gorge yourself on all the history that is on offer over there. Hundreds of documentaries, hundreds and hundreds of podcasts, all sorts going on. Join the revolution. No aliens. It's all good stuff. And you can also buy face coverings at um, historyhit.com slash shop. You can wear a boring face covering into the local shops, but if you want to wear the lower jaw of Queen Victoria, of Genghis Khan, of Alexander the Great, who wouldn't? You can buy it at historyhit.com slash shop. Some of them are selling out pretty fast, so I urge you to go there and do it as soon as possible. In the meantime, everyone here is Frederick Logaval. Enjoy. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be with you. How much do the, the, the military and civilian authorities in the U.S. know about the damage that had been done to Hiroshima? What, what was the immediate after-action appraisal of Hiroshima? You know, it's, it's a little bit unclear, I think, in the... Or at least, let's say that it was mixed in terms of the understanding of the damage done. And I think, in particular, the civilians in Washington on the 6th of August, certainly, and even the 7th and the 8th of August were uh, in the dark, maybe that's putting it a bit too strongly, but certainly didn't have a good handle on the amount of destruction caused. And I think that will ultimately contribute to a sense that one should proceed with the second bombing. I think military authorities uh, closer to the scene had a better grasp of things, but even they, my sense is that even they took the better part of a day or even two days to fully assess the, the, the scope of the damage. It, it's so interesting. People now assume an, an atomic bomb, an, a nuclear bomb is the most awesome decision that any, any prime minister or president or, or monarch can take. Um, back then, was there a, a, a tussle 
uh, at what level that authorization should be granted. Did theatre commanders sitting in the, the Pacific think, well, this is just another bomb. You know, it's like uh, any other kind of munitions we have. We don't need the president's or anyone else's uh, uh, permission to use this. Was there, was there a little tug of war going on? You know, there is surprisingly, I think, little tug of war. In fact, maybe one would say there isn't any at all. On the 25th of July, so this goes back, you know, 10 days or so, um, the administration had granted authority and Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, had signed off on the use of the weapon against Japanese targets. And then it was really a military decision uh, at that point. Uh, so Truman had given his assent on the 25th of July. Stimson had done the same. Um, and it's really Leslie Groves, the Lieutenant General, who had been head of the the head of the Manhattan Project and retained, uh, to my mind, a surprising degree of autonomy and authority here, who then makes the decision. It's also worth noting, I think, that we know that the most senior members of the government, so here I'm talking about George Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, Henry Stimson, uh, Secretary of War, Truman himself, Dwight Eisenhower, had misgivings um, of a certain uh, nature, stronger in some cases than others, and yet, obviously, they were not strong enough to cause them to say, now, wait a minute, is this something we want to be doing? That, I think, applies to the first bomb on Hiroshima, but even more so to the second bomb on Nagasaki. Nagasaki, I always think, is the, sort of, is the overlooked bomb, and yet, arguably, arguably, is the one with the more strategic effect. I don't know. Is, is, is that the case? I think that I think that it is. And of course, this is a bone of contention among historians and perhaps will be for for all time. But uh, there is a very large question here about, and it's a counterfactual question, which I, which I happen to believe have, have great utility for historians. Certainly, I use them in the classroom all the time. I ask what-if questions. Would it have been the case that the Japanese would have surrendered without either bomb um, I think the, the prevailing historical sentiment is that that's probably not the case, that the hardliners were still very much um, uh, in control. But maybe a more germane question and a sobering question is, was the second bomb necessary? Keep in mind that on August 6th, we have the first bomb on Hiroshima. On August 8th, the Soviets declare war, invade Manchuria, and it's on the 9th that this second bomb comes. Is that remotely enough time for the Japanese, faced with the first bomb and then the Soviet entry, to make a decision about whether to surrender or keep going? That, I think, is a very large question. When we're looking at the targeting of Nagasaki, it, seemed, it seems to me, from what little I know, it, it, was, it, was, a, it was chance. It was, it was about weather and it was about there was a list of targets, potentially. I mean, was there anything... And actually, the bomb wasn't even dropped on the on the center of Nagasaki, was it? So it didn't seem to have the sort of incredible, well, the, the, the careful, the painstaking thought about where exactly that bomb should be targeted that you see with Hiroshima. No, it's it's not quite a fluke. Uh, I wouldn't say that, but you're you're absolutely right that it was not considered to be the the target. Kokura was going to be the target that morning, and in fact, the B twenty nine intended for that to be the target. Weather issues primarily caused them to, to, to shift, uh, and Nagasaki became the target, but it was, uh, it was a, a kind of a chance. It had not been considered, certainly in the spring, it's in April and then in May when the first discussions about targets occur, 
And again, Groves is, I think, a key um, figure in all of this. Nagasaki doesn't figure into the equation at all. For one thing, it had been subject to conventional bombing, and U.S. planners wanted to avoid places that had experienced a lot of conventional bombing because they wanted to be able to see how the, the damage differed uh, with the nuclear bomb. Nagasaki also wasn't ideal in terms of its uh, topography, in terms of its location, and so uh, it was, a, relatively speaking, a kind of last-minute decision. You, you mentioned that U.S. civilian authorities uh, had, had cleared the use of atomic weapons, but w were they cc'd in, in the decision about which cities to hit in this second strike? Uh, they were not, uh, and uh, civilians really didn't um, factor into this decision at all. Truman and, and the rest of the civilian leadership had signed off on the 25th of July, uh, effectively ceding this authority. And I think there's a powerful argument that has been made by, um, by at least some historians that if you had kept this decision under civilian control, that is to say the second bomb, where to use it, whether to use it, and when to use it, uh, some historians have suggested there's a very good chance that it would not have been used for some of the reasons we've already discussed, that, that they would have sensed or they were sensing that you have not given the Japanese enough time. The emperor is clearly beginning to, to rethink this. Maybe it's time for us now to, to throw in the towel, to surrender. Uh, and so the argument is that civilian control here would have made a critical difference. My own personal view is that that's... That's correct. Um, uh, based on my reading of the evidence, uh, there was ample opportunity here, even if the time was relatively short, for civilian leaders to intervene and say, no, we're going to hold off. We're going to see what happens in the coming days. It's only the 9th of August. Uh, we're shutting this down. So therefore, after Nagasaki, do the civilians have to, have to rein in the military men? Were the military men planning a third bomb? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't a bomb available yet. I think, I think the case is that by November, there were going to be nine or 10 bombs uh, available, maybe 11. Um, but they were certainly uh, being produced as quickly as possible. But it's telling to me that I think it's on the 10th of August or maybe the 11th, Truman, the president of the United States, Truman himself basically suspends presidential authorization for the use of more bombs because of concern about civilian casualties. So this speaks, at least somewhat to my mind, to the notion that Truman had misgivings. Uh, I think even before the use of the first bomb, he was, he was more nervous than he wanted to let on about this and what the implications were. But the fact that so quickly, on the 10th or 11th of August, he basically says, uh, from now on, there's going to be explicit, and I'm paraphrasing, but from now on, there's going to be explicit presidential authorization before we use more bombs. Um, that says something important. And that's so fascinating because what was presumably a bit of an ad hoc decision by Truman has now become fundamental to uh, nuclear deployment and strategy, I presume, in every nation to this day. I mean, there's nowhere in the world, I'm guessing, do army commanders have uh, or, you know, have, have delegated authority to use nuclear strike, I'm guessing. Uh, I think that's exactly right, and it's a very important point. And I think you can date that norm, uh, and as you say, I think it's, to my knowledge now, uh, universally uh, the case. 
I think you can date it from, again, a day or two after the Nagasaki bombing and Truman's directive. And maybe, I'm speculating here, but maybe uh, it indicates that he and Stimson uh, and Marshall and other principal lieutenants grasped right away that if the first bomb was, was justified, after all, it's a military weapon, the Japanese are not surrendering, we're going to use it. I think already, right away, he is wondering about Nagasaki and what they have just done. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And then, we, of course, we get to the Korean War, the anniversary of which is this summer as well, in 1915. We've got MacArthur kind of wondering whether he should be allowed to use nuclear bombs without that kind of explicit presidential approval. So this is such an important period of five years. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a really good point. Uh, and I also think when we get to Indochina, which is, I've done a lot of my, my research and writing to this point on, on Vietnam, uh, and we know that uh, in the spring of 1954, when the French are about to lose at Dien Bien Phu, there is at least some contingency planning on the American side for the use of two tactical nuclear weapons to try to save the French position. So they would be used, in that case, against Viet Minh positions. Uh, and, of course, didn't happen. And I think Eisenhower, president at the time, was never that close to using uh, those tactical nuclear weapons. But, but the point you're making is, is exactly right. With respect to Korea, and periodically later in Vietnam, there was at least some thought given to, um, to use. Now, talk to me, the, the aftermath of Nagasaki, do, do, does that sharpen, do, does that increase to the point of irresistibility, the pressure on the emperor to, to surrender? Yeah, I think it does. Here again, uh, broad, um, maybe that's not the right word, deep historical uh, debate over the years um, that I think is still ongoing. And you have excellent historians debating uh, this issue. What, when is it that the emperor 
decides uh, that there's no option now but for the for Japan to uh, surrender if the Americans will agree to keep the position of emperor you know then we can proceed we must proceed etc and I think it's still a live debate there are those historians who say that it's the Soviet entry on August 8th that is really um, what what drives the Japanese um, to to their decision uh, others will say, no, I think it's actually the second bomb that is necessary for this, that neither the first bomb on Hiroshima nor the Soviet entry was by themselves sufficient, so that you still see on the 8th of August, according to this interpretation, hardliners in Tokyo, amazing as it may seem, saying, you know, we're going to get better terms if we have one final decisive military victory somewhere uh, then we can get better terms. In other words, they may be agreeing that some sort of negotiation is imperative, but now is not the right time, and it requires the second bomb for that to happen. You know, I don't know where I come down on this. Uh, I, I guess I've already indicated that my skepticism about the use of the second bomb, which I guess means that I'm inclined to say that if you hold off and you see what happens within Japanese decision-making on the 9th, the 10th, the 11th, I'm guessing based on what I've seen at least in terms of the evidence, and we have more Japanese evidence than we used to have, that you're going to get the same uh, outcome in relatively short order, meaning that that bomb was unnecessary. Did, did Truman and Marshall and any of the, the men involved with that decision, did they ever come to show any doubt later in life, do you think? Uh you know, I think they were fairly careful about this, and I think they probably felt, um, as maybe anybody would. I'm not. I'm, I don't want. To, I don't mean to condemn them for this, but I think they were reluctant to say very much in later life. Uh, I think that there. It's clear that Stimson, uh, again, the Secretary of War, was plagued by um, after thoughts and, and 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 to some extent maybe even regrets about what he had helped to to bring about. Um, I think Truman felt that as well. Truman insisted with just a little bit too much emphasis that the bombs, both of them, were necessary to forestall an American invasion of the Japanese home islands, which might have cost half a million American lives or something of that nature. Um, I suspect he probably knew that that was not going to be uh, required. And then Eisenhower, we know, we have some pretty recent evidence, uh, as soon as a couple of weeks after the, or maybe a month after the Nagasaki bombing, Eisenhower said at a social function that he wished that the war had been ended without the use of uh, of the bombs. And so I think there are these uh, misgivings, certainly after the fact, and uh, a recognition on the part of these senior officials that um, this was a terrible, terrible weapon that had been used not just once but twice. What we've, we've briefly touched on this, but what were some of the other, um, in, in terms of protocols, you mentioned the terrible weapon. Quite early on, what, what were some of the safeguards put in place? Was there an understanding that this, this had given mankind a new level of destructive capability? Um, is, is it treated in the same, perhaps, cavalier way that you might treat the development of a new, a new rocket system or a new tank? Or, or, or quite quickly, do you see them... Building what we some of us come, you know, people sort of call the sort of nuclear monarchy, you know, like this this 
all of the protocol and 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 uh, systems around the use of nuclear weapons. Yeah, I you know I'm not quite clear, Dan, on when these measures come into uh, into place, uh, and um, I, I can say this pretty early on, as we said, as as, as early as uh, August 10th or 11th, uh, Truman uh, I think came to the realization that from now on we are going to have explicit authority for any bomb that we use against the Japanese. This is um, three or four days before uh, word comes down of the Japanese surrender. So this is when he's thinking this thing might go on for for more weeks, maybe even more months. And I think that sets in motion, maybe this is all I can tell you in response to this question, it sets in motion an imperative that I think is going to be held by the United States and by by future um, uh, nuclear powers including the Soviets beginning in 1949, that you're going to have lots of safeguards uh, and that this is a weapon that really cannot be used um, at all lightly. But in terms of the particular steps and the particular mechanisms that are put in place, I'm not sure exactly when those come in. Um, just on last question, you mentioned the Soviets. Uh, how, how important do you think the Soviets were as an audience um, for, for, for dropping these bombs. Do, do you think they, American planners were focused on the defeat of Japan or was there an element of sending a message to the Soviets? I think there's no question there was also an element of, 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 of sending a message. You know, there's a phrase for this, Dan, as you may know, called atomic diplomacy. Uh, and um, for decades now, historians have debated how important was atomic diplomacy. What the phrase basically means is that, as you say, uh, an, a, a key audience here was always the Soviet Union and Stalin. Uh, and that Truman at Potsdam, and even before he went to Potsdam, he had just become president in April. So he was brand new at this. He was a neophyte. FDR had not actually shared much with him at all about foreign policy, much less the Manhattan Project. We know that Truman and some of the people around him saw here an opportunity to send a message to the Soviet Union. We already have I think the emergence of what will later become the Cold War, and no question in my mind that this is at the very least a kind of bonus. There are some historians who go further and who say that, in effect, uh, absent the emerging Soviet threat, the United States would have been slower uh, to use even one bomb, never mind both of them. I'm not sure I'm willing to go that far, but um, this kind of geopolitical uh, motivation for the use of the bomb, looking in particular at Stalin, uh, it's definitely part of the equation. Somewhere in the causal hierarchy for using the two bombs is the Soviet dimension. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about those events 75 years ago. I'm very excited you're going to come back on the podcast soon in the fall because you've just written a new book. Tell everyone what it's called. Yeah, it's called um, JFK. It's a, it's it's um, in the the American uh, subtitle is uh, Coming of Age uh, in the American Century. I think the British edition Penguin Viking is JFK Volume One, short and sweet. And <laughs> uh, would love. I really look forward to being on with you about it. It's a it's a, as they say a life and times biography. And uh, in particular, what I try to do is to contextualize the rise of this extraordinary American political figure. And I argue for the importance, among other things, of World War II and the period in which his father is ambassador to Britain 
mm-hmm. and is an, uh, an appeaser, strong supporter of Neville Chamberlain. And I, I show how little by little Jack Kennedy separates from his father on how to respond to the totalitarian threat and how to respond to both Nazi Germany and Japan. And then I take the story from there. Well, uh, I can't wait. It's going to be great. So thank you for talking today. And I look forward to talking next time as well. All the very best. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, everyone. Just a massive favor to ask if you could go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, give it a rating, five stars, obviously, uh, and then leave a glowing review. That'd be great. My mum is getting overwhelmed with the amount of different email accounts she set up to leave good reviews for me. So you're going to have to do some of the heavy lifting. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.